the letter of James, James chapter 4, reading from the first verse. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law or judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? The helmsman lets his attention wander. Then the ship is in grave danger. It will drift off course. It may come to disaster. And even in these days when there are so many electronic means of navigation, so many uh, safeguards, it's still the case that the helmsman must be on the alert at all times, otherwise disaster may result. Spiritually speaking, Christians are always in danger of drifting away from the Lord, of neglecting to cultivate a close walk with the Lord. Something that can happen very gradually, little by little. Image is used uh, in Hebrews, for example, of drifting away. Not necessarily one sudden act, but something that can take place little by little. And so we need the advice that James gives all of us about staying close to the Lord. That is the, the solution, of course, that we all need to stay close to our Saviour. Stay close to the place of grace and of blessing. Now as we consider James 4, we're moving on today to look at verses 7 to 12. Come near to God. Come near to God. Here is counsel from the Lord's servant to all of us to come near to God. Above all, that is what we require for a healthy Christian life. 
And as we look at these verses, first of all, James speaks to us about submitting to the Lord. Submitting to the Lord. And that is essential to a healthy Christian life. The focus is the Lord. Uh, Too readily we we focus on ourselves. We're to focus on the Lord. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Willingly subjecting ourselves to his authority. Respecting and obeying the Lord. And maybe of course... Submitting is not a concept that comes easily to us. Submission, well, we live in the day, of course, uh, that exalts setting yourself forth. Exalting yourself, not submitting. Asserting your own autonomy. And that is the whole outlook of our culture. And then we open our Bibles and we're exhorted, submit yourselves to God. That runs contrary to, to much of what society uh, would tell us. We're being called to respect and obey the Lord. And yet, of course, as in everything, our example is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're reminded right back uh, when he was growing up, Not even a teenager, Luke 2, verse 51, he was submissive to his parents. And no doubt that characterized the Savior's life. And ultimately, of course, submissive to the will of his heavenly Father. The will that took him ultimately to the cross. So Jesus is our example of submitting ourselves to God. But in particular, of course, as Christians, submitting ourselves to God means submitting ourselves to the Lordship of the Savior, the Lordship of Christ. That's to be the center of who we are and what we do and how we live. Submission to the Lordship of Christ. It's through him that God rules his entire creation and rules in our hearts. It's not an optional part of the Christian life. You might think perhaps to listen to, to some, you can be converted, you can become a Christian, and then at some point further along you, you submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. But Submission to the Lordship of Christ is being a Christian. It comes with conversion. That is what we begin when we are converted. We begin a life of submission to the Lordship of Christ. You think of the goal of God's great plan of salvation that's worked out through Christ. We're told what his goal is in Colossians 1 18, that in everything he might have the supremacy, that Christ would have the supremacy. That is God's great goal in everything he does, that Christ will have the supremacy. And if that is the goal of God and his plan and purpose, that surely has to be 
our goal, our ambition as Christians, that in everything Christ might have the supremacy. Our lives are included in that supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, remember as Christians we live in Christ, in union with him. We died with him and we're risen with Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. We are in Christ and we're to live for Christ. That that is our goal, that Christ will be exalted, that he will have the supremacy, he will have the first place. We, we live in a culture that in all kinds of ways would tell us it's all about you. It's all about your comfort and your welfare and your success. But the Bible tells us it isn't all about us. Ultimately, it's all about Christ. And it's his glory that we seek. It's his supremacy that is our great aim. And so James says to us, come near to God. Come near to God. How do we do that? It's easy to say it, but how do we come near to God? And he's given us what we call the means of grace, the means to come near to God, the ways that will strengthen our Christian walk, our discipleship. There's worship. As we engage together in worshiping the Lord, as we worship God in our families and individually, that's fundamental. We have his word to read, to hear, to meditate on it. We have prayer. We can pray together. We can pray alone. There's another means of grace to enable us to come near to God. As you talk to God and you open your heart to God, you come nearer to him. And so you're built up in your Christian walk. And with the sacraments, we recently observed the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And there we had opportunity together to eat and drink and to remember the Savior and to be strengthened by him. These are means of grace. These are ways of coming near to God. And of course, that's always to be our goal when we read God's word, when we pray, when we worship it's not simply a, a social activity. It's a way of coming closer to God. If we don't use the means of grace, we needn't be surprised if we do drift, if we drift away from God, if, if our enthusiasm for him and for the things of God cools off. Of course, that requires effort, doesn't it? It doesn't just happen. God doesn't read the Bible for us. We have to read it. God doesn't pray for us. We have to pray. And so we're to use the means of grace. They don't just somehow automatically bless us. But what a privilege we have. That we have access, as we're told in Hebrews 4.16, 
to the throne of grace. We have access to God. And so James exhorts us that we are to come near to him. Use your privilege. Use the access you have to come to the Lord. And what an assurance James gives us. He will come near to you. Isn't that an amazing and an encouraging truth? That God delights in the fellowship of his children. As we come near to God, he comes near to us. He doesn't stand at a distance. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. And the son is returning. Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. What does the father do? He did something an eastern father wouldn't do. He got up and he ran to his son. And surely that is the picture here. As we draw near to God, he draws near to us. He runs to meet us. Can you imagine that? That God delights in fellowship with his children. Of course, as we come near to God, there's no place for pride. Seeing that already uh, James uh, severely condemns pride. Humble yourselves before the Lord. A recognition of who we are. We're not to think of ourselves too highly. Now, we're not to think of ourselves too lowly either. There is a, a, a strand sometimes among some Christians of thinking, well, I can do nothing, I'm useless, I'm zero. And sometimes that can be an excuse, of course, for doing nothing. You know gifts and I can do nothing. Well, that lets you off doing it, doesn't it? So we're not to think in too lowly a way of ourselves. But ah, James stresses, we're not to think too highly of ourselves. We're to think of ourselves, as Paul puts it in Romans 12, 3, with sober judgment. An honest, biblical view of ourselves. And pride, as the whole of the Bible keeps telling us, is spiritually deadly. And it needs to be put to death. Humble yourselves before the Lord. But again, James gives encouragement. He keeps doing that. He gives a command and it's demanding. And then the encouragement, he will lift you up. Again, that picture. It's like... The prodigal son comes and he falls down before his father. I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father lifted him up. And James says, humble yourself before God. And what will he do? He'll lift you up. He'll lift you up. We have it in that striking text in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 30. God says, those who honor me, I will honor. Our concern as Christians surely is to be God's honor. That's to be our concern. And we humble ourselves, we come near to him, he comes to us, he lifts us up, he grants us a sense of his presence. And that is a beautiful thing in the Christian life. Sometimes we feel it more than others. Sometimes we do sense the closeness of God in a, a particularly strong way. What a what a privilege. Come near to God. He will come near to you. And that uh, is fundamental to our Christian walk, submitting 
to the Lord. But then James, as he continues to think of this theme, brings before us, secondly, resisting the devil. Resisting the devil. Because we mustn't forget there is a personal power of evil who will do us all the harm he can. Maybe sometimes it's hard for us really to take that in and to think that there is one who would seek to destroy us and take our salvation and drag us down to hell, if he could. And he is real. He's not a myth. He's not, a, he's not something to scare the children. He is real. And he will do whatever he can to hinder your and my drawing near to the Lord. He'll keep us away from God in any way he can. And we mustn't compromise with him. Resist the devil, James says in verse 7. He is a real threat to our spiritual well-being. Now, thank the Lord. He's not a threat to our salvation if we're Christians. He can't take our salvation away but he will do us any spiritual damage that he can. He's like a roaring lion. That's how Peter describes him, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. He'll do us any harm he can. Now, his power is limited by God's decree, and that's a great assurance to have. The devil can't do just anything he wants. God sets limits. Read the opening two chapters of the book of Job to see that in practice. But he has real power. Calvin compared the devil to a ferocious dog that's chained. And as long as you keep away outside the length of the chain, you're safe. But if you walk up within reach of him, he will do you damage. And that's true of Satan. He will try to tempt us and discourage us and frustrate uh, our Christian service. Anything that he can use, he will. It is within the sovereign will of God, thankfully, but he can do us damage. James says, resist him. Resist him. We need to be praying as Jesus taught us to pray. Deliver us from the evil one. There's that vital petition in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. We're to be relying on the armor that God gives us in Ephesians 6. And if we leave out part of it, we needn't be surprised if the devil does do us damage. God gives the armor. We've got to make use of it faithfully. And as always, Jesus is our example. We've already said he's the example of submission to his Father. He is the example also of resisting the devil. Remember what are really examples of the devil's temptation. Matthew 4, Satan comes. And he wants to turn Jesus away from the cross. He really doesn't care what Jesus does as long as he doesn't die on the cross for our sins. And how does the Lord Jesus Christ resist the devil? And it's crystal clear. He knew his Bible. 
our Old Testament. He knew the scriptures. And he was able to use the scriptures to answer each temptation that Satan brought. And he didn't concede an inch, not an inch. We're familiar with that phrase in this province. But spiritually speaking, it needs to characterize the Lord's people. Do not give the devil a foothold, Paul says in Ephesians 4, but we do. And we give him footholds, and he exploits them, and he does us damage. We must resist the devil and set ourselves against his attacks and soak ourselves in Scripture. The Word is so essential for us. We need to be reading God's Word and thinking about it and storing it up in our hearts. It's often noted the texts that Jesus used to resist the devil were from Deuteronomy. We might say, of all places, what do we know of Deuteronomy? A few verses maybe here and there. The Lord Jesus, the good Jewish boy, had his mind stored with Scripture. And so he was able to bring it out and use it. Remember the, the, the armor we mentioned, Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. An ignorance of God's Word is one of the great weaknesses among Christians surely today, that they don't know their Bibles. And they don't memorize God's word. We are not entirely, but almost unique, I think, as as a denomination, in still having memorizing as part of the Sabbath school curriculum. Memorizing God's word. But of course, for so many people, as soon as you finish Sabbath school, you wouldn't think of actually learning off portions of the Word of God. That's for children. But it isn't. It's for all of God's people. And we should be and we could be doing much more in storing up the Scriptures in our memories, that it's there. One of the most moving things, like in visiting some older saints and their memories are fading. One thing that stays with them is God's word. They can quote the Bible when they don't know what day of the week it is. And it stays there. What will happen with the younger generations today that never memorized God's word? When that day comes, there'll be nothing there. Here is a God-given means of resisting the devil to turn back temptation from the word of God. And again, James knows we need encouragement, doesn't he? Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Victory is possible. The devil, of course, will try and tell us he's so powerful, you might as well give up There's no point resisting. And James says, ah, there is every point in resisting. By God's grace, if we resist, he will flee from you. It is a lifelong campaign. He'll keep coming back, of course. 
And he may well come back with the same temptations. But if we resist, then he will flee. Calvin puts it well. He says, certainly for all that he brings attack after attack, he must go away if he is not allowed in. Resisting the devil. A challenge to us to use the means God has given us to resist the enemy. We must be submitting to the Lord, resisting the devil. And then thirdly, James deals with purifying our lives, purifying our lives. Because we know we don't always resist the devil. And we fall. We fall and we're humbled the hard way. We sin. And we're reminded, of course, by John, 1 John 1 and verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We're not to pretend we're without sin because we're not. But there's a solution. There's only one solution, but there is a solution when we sin and fall. Sin must be dealt with. You must see sin as an offense against a holy God and confess it. You see, that's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. Often Christians will commit the same sins, but they cannot have peace until the sin is confessed and dealt with. And we can't have peace. The Lord won't allow us peace. He loves us. He won't allow us peace until the sin is dealt with. Wash your hands, James says. Purify your hearts. We have to see sin as an offense against a holy God and confess and find forgiveness. Now, we can't wash ourselves. We can't purify ourselves. Only God in his grace can do that. That's why in Psalm 51, the psalmist prays, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And James gives us a comprehensive view of the sin to be dealt with. Our hands, the outward action, our hearts, the inner thoughts and motives that others may not be aware of at all. Not just the action, but the root in our thinking. We need to confess. We need to receive afresh the grace of God. We need to see ourselves as, as sinners. Forgiven sinners we trust, but sinners nonetheless. And we need the grace of God, but the good news of the gospel always is there is forgiveness available. The proper response to sin, James tells us, grieve, mourn, wail at his powerful language he uses. To see sin as it truly is, as God sees it. The challenge to us to ask, do we see sin in that light? Does it grieve us when we've fallen, when we know we have broken God's law? The world would often describe what we'd consider to be sin as harmless, as even a good thing. We need God's view of sin. And if we have that, it will grieve us. 
It will make us mourn over how we failed him. And yet there's hope. There's always hope for the Christian. The John who writes, if we say we've no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. He goes on to say, 1 John 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The forgiveness is there for the repentant. The Lord will not turn us away. Full of encouragement, even as he gives us a sobering view of ourselves, purifying our lives. We're not to countenance sin. We're to confess it as an offense against God and receive his forgiveness and his cleansing, purifying our lives. And the last thing James mentions at the end of our passage, again working out this drawing near to God, is honoring our brothers. James is really in verses 11 and 12 focusing attention and the general principles he's given us on an area where Christians often fail. Brothers, do not slander one another. Speaking against our brothers in Christ. And that often feeds our pride, of course. Isn't it strange? We seem to think if we can bring others down and find their flaws and their weaknesses, somehow that lifts us up and covers our flaws and weaknesses. Utterly foolish when we put it like that, and yet so often we do that. If I can find where you feel, then I must be better. And that's the kind of slandering often among God's people. And judging your neighbor, seeking to read their hearts and to know their motives. Whereas we are to love our neighbors, as the Lord tells us, as ourselves. Right back to chapter 2 of James, we looked at it in our our previous series. James 2 and verse 8, the royal law James talks about. And particularly, he singles out loving our neighbor as ourselves. The, the, the second great commandment that Jesus highlighted, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. It may not mean we find them attractive. It may not mean we find them nice people necessarily. And we are to love them and seek what is best for them. Too often in the scriptures, slanderous speech uh, is condemned, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. How Christians speak about each other is vital. I mean, we must be on our guard. How we speak about other Christians, how we speak about people from other denominations or other congregations. And that's all part of what the Lord evaluates. We're to love our neighbor. We're to love our brothers and sisters as ourselves. And James makes the real nature of such speech clear. We're speaking against the law and we're judging it. In other words, James sets it in context. It's not simply against this individual or this group of people. He takes it higher. We're speaking against God's law. 
and against God himself. We're judging God's law when we disregard it. And that's true in our use of our speech. God is the judge, not us. There is only one lawgiver and judge, James says, the one who is able to save and destroy. Does that put us in our place? Under the law of God, not sitting over it, judging it, and disregarding it when it suits us, but sitting under God's law, because he's the judge, he's the lawgiver, and he is the ultimate say in our future. We're to fix our attention on God. You see, that brings us full circle. Because that will bring us close to God. Fix your attention on him. Draw near to God as James has exhorted us at the beginning of our passage. Submit yourselves to this God who is the judge and the lawgiver. Come close to him. Honor him. He'll lift you up. He'll honor you. He'll come to you. Think of that. As you come close to God, he's coming close to you because he loves you. And he delights to have fellowship with you. Despite the sin, despite the failure, despite all that's still in us that's displeasing to him, he still comes close to us. And he'll deal with those things that are still displeasing. He's got a lifetime to do it. What a privilege he's given us. We're to use our access to God faithfully. Use the means of grace. Resist the devil. Humble yourself before God and you'll find he's come close to you. Maybe in ways you never experienced before closeness of the God who loves you. Maybe we think of it particularly in times of trial. And we pray that people under trial will find the Lord close to them. And that's right and that's proper. We pray that way. But we need the Lord close to us every day in the ordinary circumstances. And when we're not facing trials, we need him to be close We're to approach and use the path he's given us and he'll come near to us. May we know the closeness of our God, the one who loves us in Christ and know his grace day by day.